Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is journalist and researcher Dr. Sarah Kenzior. She's a columnist for Canada's Globe and Mail, and her work has appeared in multiple national outlets here in the U.S., including Politico, Slate, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. She's also the author of the best-selling essay collection, The View from Flyover Country. Dr. Kenzier has a Ph.D. in anthropology with her academic work focusing on the authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union and how the Internet affects political mobilization, self-expression and trust. She also has an always fascinating Twitter account and was named one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events by Foreign Policy magazine. Sarah Kenzier, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I've interviewed a bunch of academics on the show at this point, but you're actually the first anthropologist I've talked with. And so first off, I guess I was just wondering, how do you go from a doctorate in anthropology to a career in political journalism? Well, it helps when both industries kind of implode. Uh, You know, it's not necessarily a choice, but a reaction. I actually worked in journalism um, before I went and got my uh, PhD in anthropology. My first job was at the New York Daily News. Um, I felt that in journalism, I couldn't do the kind of work that I wanted. This was, you know, during um, a recession for the media economy. And I liked doing longer pieces. I liked exploring topics that weren't necessarily popular. Um, And among one of my interests was the former Soviet, um, you know, Central Asia. And so when I went and got my PhD, um, I had the opportunity to do that kind of in-depth research. Uh, I ran into some other obstacles in that the main country I was interested in, uh, Uzbekistan, I was no longer allowed to visit um, because of a massacre by the government of civilians that led to it being closed off from the, from the West. And so what I ended up studying uh, was how authoritarian regimes and their opponents uh, use the Internet in order to, you know, practice political dissent or to crack down on political dissent, um, which obviously became uh, inadvertently useful this year when examining the U.S. election. And so, you know, after I finished my Ph.D., I'd already been uh, writing, you know, some doing some blog stuff and some freelancing and ended up being recruited by Al Jazeera English uh, to write about things and then recruited by other publications. And it just sort of went from there. So do you think that anthropologists maybe look at the world of politics differently from most other political analysts? I mean, typically they have backgrounds in, you know, political science, economics, history, that sort of thing. And so you're, you're kind of unique in that regard. And so I'm wondering if, if you think there are any insights that uh, an anthropology background bring. Yeah, I mean, I think the main difference is that we have more of a qualitative approach uh, versus a quantitative approach. I mean, there are some anthropologists who do rely more on quantitative uh, data, but, you know, at at most we tend to uh, combine the two. Um, I think that, you know, we have a tendency to not take things for granted, um, to want to see things firsthand. A lot of our field, our field work is very long term, you know, where we focus on one area or one subject for years and see how it develops over time. Whereas I think other, um, you know, disciplines don't necessarily do that. Uh, you know, one thing I think is interesting is there have been other anthropologists who transitioned to journalism and 
I think what it gives you is kind of a keen eye for bullshit. Like um, Jillian Tat, you know, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, was an anthropologist like me who studied Central Asia like me, uh, and she predicted the 2008 financial crisis. And so I think anthropology gives you this, you know, a bit more of an instinct to look at patterns uh, and broader trends and to kind of, you know, see things that may be coming through shifts in political culture uh, rather than things that can be tracked through quantitative data. Mm. You know, in addition to being different because you're you're an anthropologist and there aren't a lot doing political uh, analysis, another thing that sets you apart, I think, from from a lot of people I've talked to and just generally a lot of people who look at politics is, is that, like me, you're not a coastal elite. I mean, both St. Louis, in your case, and Cincinnati, where I live, they're, they're often called, in a derogatory way, flyover country. And and, you know, after the election of Donald Trump, there was a lot that was made in the media about how coastal elites don't get people who live in flyover country. And, of course, many of those people voted for Donald Trump. And I'm wondering if you agree with this. And, and also, I suppose, if you think being in flyover country gives you maybe a different perspective on politics. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, wealthy people on the coast uh, don't understand what our lives are like here, but I also think they don't understand the lives of non-wealthy people uh, living near them on the coast. Um, You know, I think there's more of a general blindness. You know, one of the main things they don't get, though, about, you know, basically everything between the coasts is that, you know, we live in cities. You know, you and I live in cities, and I'm guessing that your city mostly voted for Hillary Clinton, much as... St. Louis did. And, you know, I'm guessing your city, from what I know, is, you know, a city with a substantial non-white population. And the way that uh, the media tends to portray our part of the country um, is as, you know, white, mostly male uh, manufacturing or other industrial workers, whereas in reality, uh, you know, our cities are quite diverse. Um, There's a a gulf, I think, between lifestyle of rural and urban, you know, you also find that same gulf in the coast themselves. And, you know, there's a lot of stereotyping. Um, you know, I do think that, you know, I just came back from Berkeley, so I sort of saw in the bubble for a second. Um, I do think that, you know, the life of, of people in St. Louis or Cincinnati is, you know, more typical, uh, you know, to the lives of, of most Americans. Um, I don't think it makes us more or less truly American. I don't buy into that narrative at all. But I do find it disturbing that the media tends to just disregard us, uh, have no interest in us whatsoever, unless it happens to fit into some sort of election narrative or other, you know, politically convenient narrative. Yeah. I mean, there was talk certainly right after the election that the media would change or try to do something better, you know, more coverage to, to that sort of thing. I haven't gotten the sense that that's really there's been much follow through on that. I don't know. What What do you think? Do you think that the media has started to do a better job of, of covering people who live in places like where we live? No, they haven't changed at all. And, you know, you're right that there was some interest in it. Um, you know, shortly after the election, I was invited to a lot of media conferences where people wanted to know, you know, how do we better cover the red state, quote unquote. And, you know, my answer is always hire people from the red state. You know, we, we don't live in a world where you need to show up at an office, uh, you know, in New York City to write about life in, you know, in Missouri or Ohio or wherever. Uh, and obviously you're going to get better uh, and more rigorous and in-depth coverage if you're relying on people who actually live there and understand the social and political context and have contacts in the region. You know, this is, this is sort of just common sense. Uh, they were very opposed to this. You know, one guy at 
PBS in particular, when I proposed this as the obvious solution was, but we need smart people. We need smart people who know how to write, you know, and he said that right to my face, knowing full well, you know, I live in Missouri. Um, and that's unfortunately the attitude of a lot of people who live in uh, New York or DC. And I really think it's a problem because local news is necessary and local news in our region uh, has been decimated since the recession. And I think a lot of, um, you know, a way to build up the political trust that's also eroded since the recession is to, you know, revive local reporting and kind of give people a framework of facts uh, from which to, you know, debate and reflect. Yeah. You know, I, I Kind of turn to one of your recent Globe and Mail columns where you take a look at Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. And so what is your evaluation of President Trump now that you've had a chance to see him in action for a while? I think he did essentially what I expected. You know, the, the thing I thought was up for grabs was more how are citizens going to respond and, you know, what is the strength of our institutions? What's the strength of our checks and balances? And, you know, I have mixed reviews. Um, I think Trump is basically an autocratic, authoritarian-leaning uh, individual who's operating in a flawed democratic system. You know, so we still have these, um, you know, still have these checks and balances, but they're, uh, you know, they've been flawed. And I think that the judiciary has proven stronger than I anticipated, though it's under threat. The media has proven weaker. Uh, they seem to fluctuate between actually investigating him in a meaningful way and, you know, flattering him in a way that is reminiscent of coverage I see in places like Uzbekistan. And I think citizens have been very strong. Uh, you know, I'm encouraged by the protest. I'm encouraged by the level of civic engagement and just the compassion people have shown for others. And all of that goes a long way uh, towards trying to, you know, be a counterbalance to the administration. Uh, but the administration is just as, you know, cruel and just as unconstitutional and, uh, you know, just as terrible as, as I had envisioned it would be. Right. So have have there been any, would you say there's anything that surprised you? I mean, either in a, in a uh, not so pleasant way, or perhaps maybe even in a, uh, wow, I didn't think he'd be that non-awful on that. No, I mean, you know, my only kind of things I was wondering about were, would he be able to pass these policies, which in many cases, the answer so far has been no. And, you know, there are kind of two types of uh, autocratic rule um, that I think speak to how much power the autocrat believes he has. And you can see the difference in how blatant they are in their corruption um, and in Trump's case, in their racism. You know, like I think the hiring of Steve Bannon into executive office um, and, and his children, for that matter, was just an incredibly blatant violation of, you know, norms. And in the case of his children, of laws. They're not pretending to be a democratic government. They're not pretending to respect things like don't put neo-Nazis in the White House or don't hire your unqualified children into, you know, high security, high level positions. You know, the things that would have been shocking for any other administration to do. They're doing that openly. Um, and that's usually a sign that they believe they have a lock on power, that they're immune to prosecution, um, that they're immune to law. And that seems to be the case because there really hasn't been, uh, you know, there's been protests and complaints about these sorts of actions, but there's been no concerted effort to examine, you know, the emoluments clause or other anti-nepotism clauses or the fact that Jared Kushner, you know, incorrectly filled out his security forms, which normally would cost you, you know, your security access. Um, 
that has not been followed up on. And that's a very bad sign. It shows that institutions aren't working, that checks and balances in these cases aren't working. And the more power they accumulate uh, and the more that it consolidates around the executive branch, the worse off, you know, Americans are going to be. You know, I, I know you've done a lot of work on authoritarian states in your academic uh, uh, career. And so I'm wondering, exactly with Donald Trump, there's a lot of talk about how he admires what he'll call strong leaders, you know, people who really take care of business, whether it's uh, Egypt or Russia or the Philippines or what have you, people who I tend to see as just horrific human beings. But so I'm wondering what exactly differentiates, say, a strong leader from an authoritarian leader? And, you know, how would you kind of put Donald Trump on this spectrum, I guess? I mean, I would say he's Trump himself is not a strong leader in any way because he he tends to be unable to you know actually pass things into law you know like as i was saying he's a you know an autocrat operating in a democratic system that you know most of the time um shoots him down in terms of actually you know passing initiatives or executive orders um you know other countries are much more successful that and you know when you look at authoritarian states there's a huge spectrum you know and a lot of countries fall and you know, it's described as a, you know, a semi-authoritarian state, um, you know, something like Singapore might fall along those lines. Um, you know, I, I guess, I mean, no, Russia is more straight out authoritarian, but there's some states that what they tend to do is allow, you know, a certain level of, of personal freedom, a bit more economic freedom, um, because they realize that that benefits the economy. Um, and then there are others like Uzbekistan, you know, which is quite severe, which allows, you know, no freedom of speech, no freedom of media, uh, no freedom of commerce, you know, no freedom, period. Um, and, you know, we're not anywhere near that because we're coming out of a completely different tradition. And so for Trump to try to transform this country into, you know, basically an authoritarian dynastic kleptocracy, which I think is his goal, particularly the uh, kleptocracy part, a lot of things need to change. Uh, And he's been there for a hundred days. It's not completely surprising that he has managed to achieve this. But what I do worry is that he's going to use, you know, typical authoritarian tactics of taking an emergency situation, um, something like a terror attack or an economic collapse, and using that as a pretext to issue some sort of clampdown um, on civil rights uh, and on civil society that could have lasting repercussions. Um, And we're not at that point yet, but I'm worried about it. Uh, Other people who study authoritarian states, like Timothy Snyder, are, you know, worried about it as well. Uh, And so we're going to have to see, because that's going to be, you know, the real challenge, I think. Yeah, you know, I actually, I'm glad you brought up uh, Timothy Snyder, because I know uh, he has actually suggested that not too long ago that it's inevitable that Donald Trump will try to stage a coup and, and overthrow democracy. And I read that and I was like, this is not just some nut. This is a guy who's, you know, a, a Yale historian and so forth. And so I, I'm wondering, what do you think about that? Is that a bit over the top or, or is there something to that, would you say? No, I think that's absolutely accurate. And in terms of people I would recommend, uh, he's probably my number one recommendation, both for his historic works and for his analysis of Trump, you know, which, of course, is grounded in his understanding of history. I do think that they're trying to, you know, subvert the democratic process and, you know, may come down to rewriting the Constitution, uh, throwing away, you know, laws that we've long taken for granted. Uh, there's certainly interest in that on his part. The question is, you know, whether, like, whether he'll use a, sh- a show of force 
to try to carry out these initiatives or whether he'll use the kind of pressure um, that he's been using is, you know, very well on the GOP and on other bodies that are supposed to, you know, function as checks and balances on the system. And, you know, we will become that sort of state uh, on our own. You know, I think it's very unfortunate that there hasn't been respect for, you know, constitutional processes. You know, you see this kind of, uh, you know, blocking into things like the Russia investigation, which is a nonpartisan issue. It's a matter of national security and sovereignty. And unfortunately, those are not, uh, you know, the things that many members of the Republican Party are putting first. They're not putting country first. And when you don't do that, um, then, you know, you are making yourself vulnerable. You may think that you're making your career and, you know, your own opportunities stronger, but that's always short-lived. Uh, that doesn't last long if the fundamental rules of how your government works are changed. Right. You know, I, I think certainly, I, I guess I would agree with you partly on the House side of those uh, Russia investigations. It seems like it's become something of a, of a farce, basically. But my sense of things is that on the Senate side, at least there seems to be a show of bipartisanship. And there do seem to be at least some Republican senators. I'm thinking of people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham and a few others who seem to want to push back against some of President Trump's excesses. Do you hold on any hope that at least the Senate investigation might yield some sort of a, a fair and reasonable uh, just outcome? I mean, I hope so. Uh, you know, and I was very pleased that, that Graham and McCain were the ones, uh, you know, who introduced this idea. You know, they were among the very first people to say, you know, we need a serious investigation of this issue. Uh, you know, I've tried to not have hope in people like John McCain, though, because when it comes down to things like, say, confirming, you know, Rex Tillerson, uh, you know, who's, who received an order of friendship medal from Putin and is perhaps not the best choice as Secretary of State in this current environment, he he went ahead and, and did so. You know, the same is true of, of Rubio, of Graham, of others who have spoken out um, very forcefully about, you know, Putin and about uh, the influence of, of the Kremlin on the election. Um, you know, I'd hope that they continue, uh, you know, to push for this investigation and that they treat it, um, you know, with the seriousness and, you know, integrity that it deserves. Uh, but, you know, we'll have to see what happens. You know, I do agree, though, that the problem lies largely with the House uh, Republicans. I think the Senate Republicans have been, you know, more responsible and, you know, more serious about the whole thing. Right. So it sounds to me like what what you're sort of saying is that while to this point, at least, there have been some institutions, I guess particularly the judiciary, who have pushed back at least somewhat against President Trump. Your concern is that is that he will create or, or sort of expand some sort of an international crisis and use that to kind of get into place some sort of uh, emergency authoritarian powers and it all kind of goes downhill from there. Is that is that more or less along the lines of, of what, you're, yeah, what you're concerned I mean about? He could either create a situation um, or he can just let already existing situations fester. You know, for example, in the economy, we're headed for a retail crisis. We're headed for what basically looks like an economic collapse. Um, and a responsible government would be, you know, taking initiatives to do something about this, but they don't even address it. So I think, you know, it's partly that things could just not hold on their own. Um, I do think we were in trouble as a country well before Trump got in. I think the, you know, the economy was in trouble, our institutions were weakened, and they just need to exploit those factors rather than um, create one. But I also would not rule out, uh, you know, the idea that 
they may create one. We've seen this time and time again, um, you know, as autocrats who, uh, you know, manufacture some kind of crisis. You know, you saw it in Putin's Russia, for example, you know, after he was elected. And it's a, you know, a time-tested way uh, to consolidate power. And so, you know, I'm worried about it, um, you know, on both those fronts. You know, and along the same lines, one of the things that some people might be concerned about, of course, is that as president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump has uh, the the authority to launch nuclear strikes. And, and one of the one of the things that you've argued is a concern, right, is that he's been obsessed with nuclear weapons for, well, for now over three decades. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what exactly this obsession of his is and and what you see the most concerning about it. Yeah, um, you know, that worries me quite a bit um, because, as you know, Trump doesn't need congressional approval in, in order to launch a nuclear strike. This is something that's in his domain. Uh, around the mid-80s, Trump began to tell the press uh, about his interest in nuclear weapons. He claimed he'd learned everything he needed to know about them in an hour and a half. He tried to meet, um, even though he was just a businessman, with various foreign officials uh, to discuss his nuclear plans, including with um, Gorbachev. Uh, this meeting didn't actually happen. He talked about how, you know, if we don't have, if if we have nukes, you know, why aren't we using them? Um, you know, in the past, he's talked about how, you know, using nuclear weapons on a country is a, you know, a, a a justified form of power. He fantasized about a post-nuclear Pakistan. He fantasized about dropping nukes on France. Um, and he's not a stable and, you know, uh, kind of rational individual. I don't think he, you know, understands the ramifications of just this rhetoric, um, you know, which he's expressing towards North Korea. I don't under. I think he understands in terms of policy. Um, and I also think he has a fairly profound disregard uh, for human suffering. I don't think he has any desire to want to avert human suffering. I'm not sure he sees other people as, you know, full human beings. And that, that together with his access to nuclear weapons, you know, is a very frightening combination. Yeah, uh, I could definitely see how someone would be concerned with that. Uh, so, you know, I'm wondering how you would compare him to the last Republican president, George W. Bush. Now, now Bush was a far more conventional president, but of course there was that war of choice in Iraq, which cost tens of thousands of lives, uh, at least a few trillion dollars. And, you know, you can argue it might've left the Middle East more destabilized than when he actually took office. And you throw in massive tax cuts that favored the rich and you have what's kind of a liberal nightmare of a presidency. And, and certainly on, on uh, I guess what some people might call aesthetic grounds. I mean, Trump is a, is a sort of a vulgar guy that Bush really wasn't. But on policy grounds, I think some people wonder, can Trump really do any worse than that? I mean, I think Trump absolutely can. Uh, that said, after Bush left office, I thought, well, you know, there goes probably the worst president I'll see in my lifetime, uh, you know, which proved to be untrue as of this year. Um, you know, in terms of irresponsible military incursions that destabilize regions and cause the deaths of millions. Uh, you know, yes, Bush is currently worse than Trump, but I think that, you know, this is one of Trump's ambitions and he has, uh, you know, neoconservatives in his administration, um, you know, warmongers, as well as his own, you know, uh, feelings on that, where he 
you know, talks kind of casually about bombing the shit out of people. You know, that's a direct quote. Um, and he, you know, strikes Syria for no particular strategic purpose, strikes Afghanistan uh, for no purpose. The purpose seems to be to get applause and approval from the media. I don't think that that's the way that Bush operated. I think he was somebody who was surrounded by advisors who were able to, you know, shape his policy. I don't think that Bush was a very curious person. I don't think he had a particularly strong understanding of what he's even doing in the presidency and, you know, shouldn't have been there, honestly. But I don't think that he was sadistic. And I don't think that he was, you know, so reckless uh, that he would do something, for example, like inflame tensions with a nuclear power like Trump has been doing with North Korea. And, you know, one of the key differences, though, is the domestic policies, you know, Bush's immigration policy, the way that Bush, um, you know, made sure to not denigrate Muslims. You know, you can make a strong case that, you know, he hurt, you know, and killed, you know, millions of Muslims um, and that his policies were very anti-Muslim, both in terms of, uh, you know, foreign incursion and in, you know, terms of surveillance uh, within the United States. But he didn't have this, you know, white supremacist, xenophobic, radical movement uh, behind him, jumping on, you know, turns of phrase like Trump makes against marginalized groups. And so with Trump, you have, you know, a lot of potential for extreme violence abroad, but you also have potential for extreme violence uh, within the United States from these sort of fringe parties, and he encourages it. He doesn't see it as his job to stop it. He sees his job as to cultivate it. And I think that that's the thing that really distinguishes him from somebody like Bush. Right. You know, you've, you've mentioned a few times that some of the, the people in the Trump administration and, and kind of along those lines, you actually recently got into a, what I thought was a pretty interesting Twitter exchange with uh, Trey Orndorff, who's actually part of our politics guys team. Uh, it started, you tweeted that uh, today Trump established voice, which historians compared to not Nazi initiatives, which isn't surprising as Nazis are in the White House. It's not Bush 2.0. And Trey responded, suggesting it was a poor analogy and it makes it even harder to criticize the program uh, meaningfully. Things kind of went on from there. And I kind of wanted to get your take on what I see as the larger issue here is that uh, the words and comparisons we use to describe Donald Trump or as well as, you know, his his advisors and supporters. And uh, it strikes me and following your Twitter feed, you're pretty, you know, no holds barred. You, you you say it like it, like like you feel it, you know, and and I'm wondering what you see is uh, the pros and maybe the cons of things like, for instance, you know, Nazi comparisons and things like that. Yeah, I mean, in that particular tweet, I wasn't making an analogy. Like I was talking about an actual Nazi who was in the White House. Um, you know, and now they're sort of claiming he's leaving. But, you know, Seb Gorka um, is a Nazi who is funded by our tax dollars to have an administration and, you know, the highest levels of power. Steve Bannon is alleged uh, to have, you know, Nazi ties. And, you know, even if he's not formally affiliated with the neo-Nazi movement like Gorka is, he certainly, uh, you know, has the beliefs um, and the, you know, kind of, uh, idea of how, you know, laws should be made and of, you know, people's superiority or inferiority, you know, based on how they were born or who they are uh, as, you know, Nazi leaders. That would be more of a comparative one. But in that case, um, you know, like George W. Bush would not have put in uh, this band of freaks, uh, you know, like Bannon, like Gorka, like Miller, um, like a lot of the more, uh, you know, radical elements of this administration. You know, these are people who once existed on the fringes of U.S. politics. 
and have now been pulled to the center, uh, much in the same way that extremist rhetoric has become mainstream, uh, to the point that when, you know, Sean Spicer talks about Holocaust centers, uh, it's a story that lasts, you know, maybe half a day, because some other horrific action that the administration does uh, takes precedence. And so, you know, my initial response on that tweet was to Chris Hayes, who also was saying, you know, Trump's no big deal. He's just Bush 2.0. And, you know, as I was just saying before, uh, he's not. He's a lot worse. There are certain similarities. Uh, but, you know, he, he's just worse in his intent, and he's much worse in terms of the people he surrounds himself with. And, and so then it's it's sort of an issue of if, if you let this sort of thing go or if you don't call a, well, a Nazi a Nazi, I guess it's it's the concern about kind of normalizing this sort of thing is, is what I'm kind of hearing then. Yeah, I think people have a sort of disbelief that there there is a Nazi in the White House. Uh, you know, this is a fairly rapid change. You know, I would say like four years ago, you know, certainly 10 years ago, we couldn't have imagined this scenario. And we certainly couldn't have imagined a scenario of, you know, these individuals just sitting there, uh, you know, without being removed, without sort of, I mean, there is mass outcry, but it doesn't seem to have much of an effect. Uh, the media treats it very much like a game. Uh, they treat it like it's a reality show. You know, is this guy in, is this guy out? Instead of thinking about, you know, what are the broader repercussions of the normalization of these sort of extreme people and of the idea of them being, you know, legitimate actors in our government. You know, Gorka, uh, in addition to being a Nazi, has a fake PhD and no qualifications. You know, this is just someone who there's no purpose for him to be there other than to legitimize um, Nazis and anti-Semitism as part of a mainstream, you know, American directive that is approved by, you know, the highest people in power. And you know, as ridiculous as he is as an individual, that's a very frightening thing um, as a long-term phenomenon. And the longer that, you know, we remain complacent and kind of think, okay, well, you know, this guy's just kind of a whack job and, how, you know, what are the ramifications for my life? You know, we will find those ramifications. Something like the Voice Act, uh, you know, for example, is uh, a policy that is reminiscent of Nazi Germany. And with Trump not being a rational actor, uh, with him, you know, being surrounded by people who are more rational, but, you know, who have, you know, extremely xenophobic, uh, extremely racist and very anti-constitutional motives, there's really no telling uh, how this is going to play out in a more permanent fashion where it's not just rhetoric, but it's actual policies and law. Right. Now, do you think that there's any, I don't know, any benefit for progressives, for liberals to uh, kind of break out of their silos and sort of seek out conservative, maybe even pro-Trump viewpoints and arguments? And I guess if you do kind of to follow up on that, you know, where where would you say people would go for that? Because, I mean, for instance, I've tried reading Breitbart on more than one occasion, but it's just I just it's just a hot mess, basically, I think. And it doesn't seem very helpful at all. So what, what do you what do you think about that? I think there's a difference. You know, there's sort of three groups here. There's like conservatives. Uh, there are people who voted for Trump. And then there's Trump's base, you know, which I would describe as something uh, like Breitbart. And that base, I think, is extremely difficult to reason with. Uh, it's worth reading so that we kind of know, you know, what they're thinking, what they're prioritizing, what moves the government might make. But, you know, it's basically impossible to engage with them in a good faith argument. Um, in terms of conservatives, you know, I absolutely encourage progressives and progressives and liberals to 
read conservative writers who are thoughtful, who are, you know, taking account of what's happening in this administration. Um, you know, there are conservative writers who I like, you know, like Evan McMullen or Rick Wilson, um, you know, both of whom are anti-Trump and both of whom hold other positions that I, I don't agree with at all. But, you know, these are rational people, uh, thoughtful people who care about their country and are, you know, trying to, uh, you know, navigate its, you know, political crises. Um, and then the third group is really Trump voters. And, you know, uh, I live in Missouri and, you know, Missouri went for Trump. Um, and I talked to a lot of Trump voters, not just as I was interviewing people as a reporter, but in everyday life. Um, and a lot of them were not particularly enthusiastic about voting for Trump. You know, they really hated Hillary Clinton or they were pro-life, you know, or they were lifelong Republicans. They had some other reason. And, you know, those are folks uh, that I think, you know, are worth talking to because, you know, some of them who I've spoken to are frustrated with uh, how the Trump administration has gone. They believed him about some of his promises on the economy and on other things, and they feel like they got a bad deal. And, you know, I, I think that a voter is not the same uh, as a fan. You know, people often pick what they see as, as the worst of um, as the least of two evils. You know, in this case, I, I strongly disagree that Trump was the least. I mean, I think, you know, he was a nightmare. That said, uh, if people are taking stock of the situation and, you know, reconsidering it, I, you know, I think those are, are very good people to have a conversation with and hear their perspective and, you know, have them hear yours and see if there's there's points of, you know, commonality. Right. So kind of pulling back a little bit, what would you, given, given all you, all you've seen in the last uh, hundred days plus, uh, what would you say is the biggest issue that's facing the, the United States, the Trump administration right now? And uh, how do you feel they're likely to handle it and maybe how they should handle it in a more perfect world? Oh man, there's so many issues. I mean, it's very hard for me to pick, um, you know, because you can look at something like uh, Obamacare and, and people losing it and the fact that, you know, they may well die or their children may die because of this. It's hard to sort of dismiss that. But if I were to just pick one thing that kind of encapsulates a lot of different problems that they're having, it's the emergence of kleptocracy as a system of government. Um, it's, you know, corruption embedded in the, in the government. It's this dynasty that's forming from uh, Jared and Ivanka being uh, in positions of power where they're able to abuse them for personal profit, um, you know, like Ivanka did recently uh, with China, you know, and her trademarks. It's Trump using, you know, Mar-a-Lago, funding his own ventures with taxpayer dollars, profiting off of his hotels. You know, he hasn't divested. He hasn't released tax returns. And then that all brings you back uh, to the Russian interference problem, you know, which I think is an incredibly severe problem. It's a threat to our national security. Um, and that is related to his kleptocratic ambition. We don't know about his debt. Uh, we do know that he had, you know, strong relationships with oligarchs. We do know that, you know, despite his rhetoric being very inconsistent on other topics, Trump has been extremely loyal to Russia, extremely loyal to Putin. And I tend to think for Trump, this is less of an ideological matter than it is a matter of money, uh, which is, you know, his primary uh, concern in life is money and fame uh, and, and flattery. And so I think that if we examine uh, kleptocracy as an issue, uh, you know, it encapsulates a whole bunch of problems that we've got going on. Right. Yeah, let's, as we kind of come to a close, I'm going to see if I can move things on to a slightly more positive note. At least I'll give it a shot. Um, what, what would you say the United States is doing 
right as a country? I mean, ideally something maybe that our political system is doing well or something we can point to with, you know, some sort of justifiable pride. Oh, I mean, I'm still proud of this country. You know, I'm, I'm proud to be an American as the song says, although I'm not particularly sure how free I am these days. You know, I'm proud of uh, citizens that are standing up for their rights, um, you know, that are looking out for their communities, looking out for their neighbors that are, you know, taking it upon themselves to protect uh, the things that are best about our country, you know, our, our constitution, our, uh, you know, traditions of, of freedom um, and personal liberty, and trying to protect it from a government uh, that seems hell-bent on, on transforming it. And so, you know, when I see these acts of compassion, when I see these acts of concern, I'm very pleased by that. Um, I'm also pleased by, you know, some of our representatives, you know, I think Maxine Waters in particular uh, has been a great model of how, uh, you know, we person living in a democracy should behave when they're under the rule of an autocrat. Uh, she's been pushing back hard and, you know, Adam Schiff, uh, Ted Lieu, others as well. So, you know, Americans are managing to hang in there. This has been a very rough 100 days. I think it's been very shocking for a lot of people because it kind of uh, thwarts their assumptions of how life should work. I think people take, uh, you know, fewer things for granted. Um, they understand their rights better and they're fighting for those rights. And so I just hope that people continue to do that, um, you know, because it, our best bet is the people. Uh, you know, no one's coming to save us from this and institutions have eroded, but people still have the ability, you know, to fight for themselves and on behalf of each other. And, you know, I, I hope they continue to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I hope they continue to do that right up until November of 2018, where where I think uh, <laughs> a good turnout might do a, a lot of good to progressive causes. That's for sure. So um, <laughs> assuming we have elections, well, yes, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> now, what, one final question for you, aside from following your work and your Twitter feed, uh, I, which I definitely recommend people check out, uh, where would you recommend recommend politics guys listeners go to get kind of a fuller deeper kind of understanding of politics whether it's websites journals podcasts books what have you i mean i, I always encourage people to read broadly uh you know to investigate opinions that they might not agree with but honestly the biggest sort of weakness i've seen in people's understanding of what's happening is a lack of knowledge of history and so i would really encourage people uh to read up on autocracies on authoritarianism around the world, both in the past and in sort of present analogs like Poland or Hungary or Turkey, and to look at systemic racism um, and brutal state tactics that have been practiced in the U.S. under law, uh, slavery, Jim Crow, internment camps, the treatment of Native Americans. There's this attitude of, you know, this can't happen here, we're America, democracy and you know it has happened here and it also happens elsewhere and I think if you have an understanding of that um, you can kind of predict better what the administration is doing uh, you understand it better you'll understand that it's possible and you'll know uh, better how to fight so I encourage everyone to go you know and go get their uh, history books and learn a bit more about the world. Oh, I think that's some great advice, actually. And with that we will close uh, Sarah Kenzier thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any suggestions for future guests, or if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. 
We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. We especially appreciate those monthly sustaining contributions through Patreon. They really do help out a lot. If you enjoyed the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you join us.